Thank you, David. Have you got new shoes, David? Where are you? <laughs> They're lovely, lovely bright orange. Good morning, all. I particularly like that second, second Bible reading about uh, purifying us. And that's, that's the theme of this morning. I can still remember the little old green ringing, ringer washing machine that my grandmother, yeah, there it is, used to have when I was a child. Does anyone else remember seeing one of these? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Most of you might wonder, wow, how could anyone remember that far back? Wasn't it before the days of radio? Well, no, not quite that far, but it was before the days of four-track and eight-track players, before cassettes, before colour TVs, a long way before DVDs, computers, mobile phones and the internet. It was around the mid-1960s, I suppose, when I remember seeing that old green ringer washing machine sitting out on my grandma's back porch in High Street in Geelong. What a job washing day must have been. I remember grandma would be worn out, <laughs> dare I say, wrung out, <laughs> by the time the day had ended. But she still managed to cook up a batch of scones for, for myself and my sister Tracy and, and granddad on that old wood-fired cast-iron stove. But there's one thing about that washing machine that I just won't forget, and that's how flat the clothes were as they came out of the ringer. And in those days, I even wondered if those poor old clothes might be feeling a bit of pain when they went through the ringer. I always was a bit weird in my thinking as a, as a kid. Just like the clothes, so much of our lives today are spent going through the ringer. And yes, it does hurt when you're going through it. It's as though God has got hold of the crank handle of our lives and he's slowly, methodically turning that crank and squeezing all of that excess junk, all of the sin out of our lives. How many of you might agree that the ringing process can be uh, painful and perhaps dreaded? <laughs> but the problem is, if you don't send these clothes through the process of washing and, and wringing them out at regular intervals, then the clothes become pretty useless. Or if you do wear them anyway, no one wants to be around you very much. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like, don't ask Christine this, please, yeah. I feel like my attitude and my spirit get to stinking every once in a while. I develop some stinking thinking, and I need a proverbial checkup from the neck up. The effects of this sinful world that we live in 
it just gets all over us. It grinds its way into our lives. And sometimes it even gets really deep down into our heart and into our mind. And that's when we need to get washed out all over again. So God takes you, plunges you into the hot water of life, he agitates you with all sorts of problems, trials and tests, other means of scrubbing you down to get the filth out. Then he runs you through the ringer to squeeze out the junk and you're left hanging there in the sun. S-O-N, sun, to dry, all pure and white once again. And this is what's happening in Zechariah's fourth vision that we're looking at now. A quick recap on Zechariah so far. The Lord gave Zechariah eight visions about the house of Israel. Now, all of these visions occurred at the time of rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And the enemy, Satan, he was doing everything in his power to defeat or slow down or stop rebuilding these walls. So far we've seen three of Zechariah's vision. The first one, seven horses and messengers. The messengers report to God that all of the surrounding nations that have oppressed Judah and Israel, they're living in careless and sinful ease. They're at rest and peace. Israel asks, though, Israel asks, hey, why isn't God punishing the wicked? And we learned in the first vision that wicked nations don't prosper forever because God one day brings them judgment, the judgment they deserve. Then we saw in the second vision four horns representing the four world powers that oppressed and scattered the people of Judah and Israel. And then Zechariah saw four craftsmen who were going to throw down the horns. Yes, the four horns represent the nations that lifted up their might to scatter Judah, God's people. <laughs> but those nations went too far. It's perhaps not very different to, sadly, what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. And so God will send craftsmen to terrify and cast these nations down. The point is that God will one day destroy the nations for their sin by a craftsman. I wonder who that craftsman could be. Maybe Jesus. Third vision, a man measuring the city of Jerusalem, a city that one day will be full of people, and God himself will be the wall around the city. The city will be restored in God's future kingdom, and God will keep his promise to protect his people. Oh boy, today Jerusalem is indeed a city without walls because with all the modern warfare, walls are just useless for for defending a city, aren't they? But ultimately, Jerusalem 
<laughs> it'll be a city without walls because the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6, will reign from Jerusalem and he will be her protection. So the fourth vision we're looking at now, Zechariah sees Joshua, high priest, and Satan standing beside or before the angel of the Lord, standing before God. It symbolises how Judah can overcome Satan and be cleansed through the power of Jesus Christ. So maybe now that ringer introduction makes a little bit of sense. Let's look at verse 1. Then he, that is the angel of the Lord, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So Joshua was the high priest when the remnant returned to Jerusalem and began rebuilding the walls. And here he is, standing beside Satan and before God. Satan is standing right beside Joshua to accuse him before God. What a scary thought that is. Joshua wasn't in God's presence just as a spectator. He was a ministering priest, the high priest. He represents Israel in, in this vision. And he represents the sinful spiritual condition that Israel is in. And that's important to understand that the vision, in this vision, Joshua represents in Israel and the sinful condition that it's in. And there's Satan standing right there to oppose Joshua, to accuse him before God. And that's what Satan does. He stands in every spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 says, Satan is our enemy. <laughs> that's pretty bad. But one thing worse than having Satan as our enemy is to have him as our friend. Right? Then in verse 2a, we see the Lord standing before Satan and the Lord prevents Satan's advance. Let's look at verse 2a. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you is also mentioned in Jude 1 to 9 when Michael, the archangel, used the same phrase uh, in battling against um, Satan then. The angel of the Lord just slams Satan. There's no other way to put it. He just slams Satan. There's no calm judge who's only interested in getting a ruling right. This judge is anything but calm. This judge, the angel of the Lord, gets emotional and powerful from the bench. What do you think, Paul? <laughs> Call it what you want. Call it shutting down Satan. Call it rebuking, rebuking Satan. That's what happened. So isn't it comforting to know that when God does allow Satan to attack and harass his people, 
that God also strictly regulates what Satan is allowed to do. I think Satan would have hated this whole scene. He hates it when God's people come into the presence of the Lord. Satan hates it when they come into God's presence to serve and honour the Lord. In verse 2b, the angel says to Satan, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So what does this big rhetorical question about burning sticks being snatched from the fire mean? Well, it means that God has snatched Joshua out of his sin away from Satan. It means that God's chosen people have had their time of exile in Babylon that, and, and that was their punishment because of their sin. But now God saved them. God has snatched them from the hand of their enemies, brought them back to the land and cleansed their sin. And now God's going to set up the temple and its priesthood for them once again. Let's look at verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Filthy clothes. What, what would you say if I came to church dressed in tattered and dirty shorts, smelly T-shirt, hair was all messed up, didn't have any shoes on, I smelled like I, f- I fell in the sewer? I'm sure you would be appalled. Suppose I didn't even mention it or, or just didn't make any excuses for my appearance. I just acted like oh, everything's normal. You'd probably take me aside and see if something was wrong. <laughs> you might even ask me, hey, is, is the water supply and the sewerage system in Machen's Beach working okay? <laughs> it, I would be wrong for trying to come into God's house dressed like that. It's probably okay for a footy field, but not for church. So here we see a picture of Joshua, high priest, standing before God, wearing filthy, stinking clothes. He was filthy and stinking on the outside, also on the inside. He's unfit to come before the Lord. The filth and the stench in this vision represents the nation's sin, the sin of other people, and the deplorable and sinful condition of the Levitical priesthood. Notice how, as Joshua the high priest stood in the presence of the Lord, Satan accused him on seemingly solid grounds. Joshua was, in fact, guilty of standing before the Lord in filthy garments, filthy in sin. And Satan must have been pointing to those filthy clothes, Joshua's sin, and declaring forcefully that Joshua is unfit to stand before you, Lord. But what does the angel of the Lord do about Joshua's filth? Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. 
Yes, Satan did have a lot to accuse Joshua of. But, that's Trevor's favourite word, but Joshua had the most powerful advocate, angel of the Lord. So the Lord addressed the problem by cleansing Joshua, taking away his filthy garments, his sin, the evil that they represented. So Joshua would have enjoyed that, having his iniquity removed. But more than that, he was given positive righteousness. He was clothed with clean, rich, fresh robes. And the thought of being clothed by God in righteousness righteousness runs from Genesis, verse 3-7 and 3-21, right through to Revelation 7, 13-14. Let's have a look at verse 5 now. Then I said, the angel of the Lord said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. So what's the turban about? Well, the turban was a bonnet which a high priest put on his head when he entered into the sanctuary. And God putting a clean turban on Joshua's head signified that God had renewed Joshua back to the office of the high priesthood which had been defiled, profaned before. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then... You will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. So here God promised Joshua that he would indeed continue to serve as high priest but only if he walked in obedience to God and kept God's requirements. And that's significant for us today. God will indeed give us a place in his kingdom, but only if we walk in obedience to God and keep God's requirements. Let's have a look at verse 8. Listen, my priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. The term branch is used as a title for Jesus, the Messiah. That's from Isaiah 4.2 and 11.1. It's also Jeremiah 23 and 33. The branch is associated with fruitfulness and life. And Jesus actually used the same image when he said that he was the vine and we are the branches, John 15, 5. So when God says he's going to bring the branch, he's referring to Jesus. Verse 9, 
See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So just in case the image of a branch is not enough, God gives us another picture or image, a stone having seven eyes. Looks a little creepy, doesn't it? Well, the term eyes also means facets, so it could have been a seven-faceted stone. The phrase um, seven eyes does occur three other times in the Bible. First, well, three times, not other times. The first is in Zechariah 3.9, we just read. Second is Zechariah 4.10, who dares despise the day of small things since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone of the hand of Zerubbabel. The third time is Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. It is very clear that the seven eyes is a title unique to Christ. It refers to God's omniscience. What a good word that is, omniscience. It means that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing and therefore all-seeing. And this is confirmed by the rest of that verse that declares that the Lord Almighty will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Bring it on. We've got the last verse now, verse 10. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbour to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord. Get your neighbour and invite him. Come over and sit under your vine, sit under your fig tree. Well, inviting your neighbour to sit under your vine on your fig tree is a proverbial expression that means prosperity and peace. 1 Kings 4.25 and 2 Kings 18.31. Ultimately, this peace is the peace of that the reign of the Messiah, Jesus, brings us. So in summary, the vision of Joshua the high priest shows how the filthy clothes of sin are replaced by the pure linen of God's righteousness. Christ has taken our clothes of sin, thank you, Lord, and replaced them with God's righteousness. Now, there will be times when the sinfulness of this world will be all around us. Maybe because of those to whom we minister, or perhaps because of where we will minister. But know that as we pursue Christ, he will continually wash and cleanse his people and his church.
but only if we choose to stay off the fence, off the fence of worldliness and sinfulness and, and compromise. We can't compromise. We, we have to remember that Christ is coming back for a spotless bride, one without spot or blemish. And it says that in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. So as we pursue Christ with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, he will do for us as he, as he did for Joshua in this very powerful prophetic vision. He will replace our filthy clothes of sin with pure linen. But we've got a responsibility. We have a responsibility just as Joshua had a responsibility. Our responsibility is to walk in God's way and keep his requirements. See, just because God gives us grace doesn't mean that we can dismiss our responsibility. We can't. We need to have an attitude of gratitude for what God's done for us. And that should surely motivate us to follow him and want to serve him, including inviting our neighbour to sit under the vine and the fig tree that he's now provided for us. I'll pray. Lord God, you are great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty, glorious beyond our comprehending and always worthy of praise. Father, even as we seek you, we admit our limitations. Our life is just like a vapour on this earth, yet you are eternal. Our understanding is limited. You are all-wise and all-seeing. Give us vision, Father, like Zechariah, to see your glory, your presence, see it blazing like the sun. And Father, strengthen us to persevere in seeking you so that our needy souls might be satisfied in you alone, <laughs> our creator, our saviour and sustainer. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, to whom... With you and the Holy Spirit, there is all honour and glory now and forever. Amen. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, David, for reading our Bible reading. Um, now we're going to have.